Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Tracy Ray from the employment law firm of Baron Lehman. Tracy says that OPB sponsorship is a great way to support the community and connect with Baron Liebman's clients. From the Gert Boyle studio at OPB, this is Think Out Loud. I'm Dave Miller. I'm joined now by the new president of the University of Oregon. Carl Schultz is the 19th president of the university. He started on July 1st. He's a professor of economics with a focus on poverty, who has spent his academic career at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, most recently as provost. He's also had stints working in two presidential administrations, first at the Council of Economic Advisors and later at the Treasury Department. He's come to Eugene at an interesting time, with the university expanding its presence in Portland and leaving the Pac-12 for the Big Ten. It's also a challenging time for higher education more broadly, as American confidence in colleges and universities is plummeting. Carl Schultz joins me to talk about all of this. Welcome to the show and congratulations. Thank you very much, Dave. It's really a treat to be here. I want to start with the the big picture that I, I mentioned there. There's been a, a massive shift in public sentiment about the value of a college education in recent years. According to one poll that was uh, written about recently in the New York Times, the percentage of young adults who said that a college degree is very important fell from 74% to 41% in just 10 recent years. What goes through your mind when you see stats like that? And there are many others. That's not an outlier of a poll. There is a real trend that has been seen in many polls. Anyone in higher education uh, finds these worrisome trends, but confidence in all types of institutions across society has fallen. So higher education is not immune to that. But those of us who are inside uh, the America's leading research universities know about the great work that happens every day. And we see the transformation that happens with our students. We see the contributions of our research to the, to, to the greater good. And we see the kind of magnificent cultural contributions that happen at universities. So there's this disconnect. Every day we see the great work that's being done. Yet, as you point out, that there is this feeling that college isn't worth it or our value are antithetical. The antidote to that, I believe, is being out and meeting and telling our stories, and not just telling our stories inside the university, but telling our stories to community leaders and faith faith leaders, having others who have been benefited from higher education do the same. Most of the graduates of higher education feel that the experience was precious and that's, that's our great strength. Those who are experiencing it believe deeply in the value, and it's, we need to amplify those voices. If I understood you correctly, essentially what, what you said was not that we need to change something fundamental, but we need to do a better job of, of telling our story. Is that a, a fair, very short encapsulation of what you just said? It is. Uh, uh, telling our story is part of it, but of course we are constantly thinking about what we do and how we do it and how to do it better. And so we're, we're interested in change, but we also, I think that the tell, if you will, is almost everybody who graduates, who experiences it, is enthusiastic. 
All right, we have to talk about money, though, because if from my read of a lot of these these polls and and the analysis of them, money is at the heart. I mean, you did point out something which I, I think is important that that American trust in all kinds of institutions is dropping. But when it comes to higher education, it seems that a big culprit is debt. For a long time, people in your position have have argued, truthfully, that there is uh, an income boost that comes from going to college. But what some of the newer studies have looked at more deeply and, and maybe more helpfully is what happens to overall wealth. And that includes the debt that people accrue often when they go to college. And when you do that, the picture is a lot less rosy. It's much more complicated. What are the implications of that? Yeah, so I think the the facts are still very contested. There's a very popular or widely circulated uh, New York Times Sunday Magazine that makes the argument that that you've made. But the but based on research from from folks at the Fed in St. Louis and other places, I mean, it's, they didn't invent this data. But you're, you're saying the data there is a there is there, a study, debate a well-cited about the data? study at the St. Louis Fed. But then there's an article recently out of a Harvard economist in the Atlantic that calls into question. So this is this is hotly contested terrain. Um, I'm an economist by training. Yeah. I think a lot about these. I think the research results are overwhelming that the about the college wage premium that college graduates earn over their lifetime, you know, a, a million dollars more than those without a college degree. When you translate, then someone's saying, "Well, think about wealth rather than earnings." Um, but the the wealth there is a widely cited St. Louis Fed study, but again, pretty. Tested, and my reading of the evidence still is that the financial return to college is very, very positive, very strong. Moreover, college isn't simply about making a good living, although that's an important part of it, but it's also about leading a good life. And I'll tell you, I don't think there are probably any investments in society that provide a higher rate of return than investing in one's human capital, that is, going to college. On debt, um, I can give you some statistics for the University of Oregon. Nearly 60% of our graduates at the time of graduation have zero dollars of debt. Among those with debt, the average debt is $25,000. That's an investment of $25,000 for, again, on average, an increased earnings of a million dollars over one's career, an overwhelmingly positive return. Do you have uh, any knowledge right now of what that looks like by race? Because one of the things that, that the research is, and you said it's contested, and and I, I we, we're not going to get into the methodology of that, you know, St. Louis Fed study. I but your listeners would love that. Right? <laughs> well, but but the reason I bring it up is is I'm that joking. is that um, they the researchers have also found um, that the, to the extent that there is currently a, a, an overall wealth bump from going to college white graduates are much, much more likely to have it than black graduates. There's, they say that there's essentially, for people born in, and this has changed over time as college has gotten a lot more expensive, but for um, people who went to college who were born in the 80s, for, for white students, there is, there is an appreciable wealth bump to, still. But for black students, it's almost negligible. It, it's barely there, which shows just it's one way of a million to see racial disparities in our society, including in higher education. Do you have a sense for what that looks like at the U of O? I, I, I do not. Again, uh, tracking returns to college with wealth, uh, it's... 
we observe wealth, we tend to observe wealth at points of time. And so one of the challenges with the St. Louis Fed study is earnings premiums of college increase as one ages. And if you have a point in time snapshot on wealth, you don't capture that 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 divergence, as and that's why age. you think that looking at people born in the 1980s may be an unfair version of it, as opposed a, as opposed to saying that, be... that, that that society has changed and it's and it'll hold true for those for those younger graduates as they get older. I agree with you. Well, I wait, that was sorry. That, that, I meant that as a question. You're saying yep. you don't think they'll hold true. We're getting into methodology, and I uh, I don't I don't know enough to weigh in one way or another. Black white wealth gaps in society are a real thing. Earlier in my career, I wrote on it. And uh, college is one of the probably leading ways we have to try to ameliorate those gaps. But there are big generational differences in wealth. And so you see very differences in inheritances between white families and black families. You see differences in housing wealth. There's all sorts of things. College is one of the ways to try to ameliorate those. Do you think that higher education in this country is too expensive for the people who are going? Higher education is such a broad sector. I think there are uh, plenty of colleges and universities um, where it's maybe not such a great deal. Uh, Places like the University of Oregon, I think, are a phenomenal deal. And I'll repeat my statistics that nearly 60% of our students graduate without a single dollar of debt. Uh, The amount of institutional aid uh, that we contribute at the University of Oregon is roughly the same size as that at my previous institution, even though the university, our student body, is about half what it was, or what it is at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And so lots of institutions like the University of Oregon are doing their utmost to make college college affordable. Without naming names because it's unnecessary, you said there, there are that it, there are some schools that where maybe it, it, it does not make financial sense. What are the categories of schools that where you think it's too expensive for the value? And I ask you this as an economist as opposed to a fellow university president. <laughs> yeah. I... Um, <laughs> I don't it's it, it's the uh, sort of private for-profit institutions is not a particularly good sector of the higher education marketplace I say without you know trying to cast dispersions on people who are trying to do great work I want to turn to some of the political aspects of this because negative views of higher education have risen among all respondents to surveys, but there is a growing partisan gap. Conservatives and Republicans now are much more likely to be mistrustful of colleges and universities these days than people identify as progressives or liberals or Democrats. What do you think is behind that? Well, I I think um, some have made the charge that the values held or embraced in our institutions are antithetical to the values of those who don't have college degrees. Uh, I, I don't think that's true, but uh, skillful politicians are able to use uh, that as a wedge uh, issue. Um, I think what's important 
Um, there's there's great misconceptions about how the higher education is structured. So overwhelmingly, people think that we run for-profit businesses, for example, and place institutions like the University of Oregon are nonprofits, and like all nonprofit institutions are focused on our mission. And so there's 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 a lot of sort of misunderstanding of 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 what we do, and. Um, as I said, there's a, so much polarization in society, and we're not immune to that. So where does that leave you? Because it, it doesn't seem like a, a good trend for society if about half uh, of, of the country starts not going to college. I agree. And so uh, we— And I, sh- I shouldn't say that, that having negative views uh, about higher education means people won't go, but, but an increasingly polarized— set of campuses around this country cannot be good for the country. I, I, I agree. Just as uh, faith in political leaders going down cannot be good for the country or views about the integrity of elections can't be good for the country. Um, and so, or views of the media <laughs> can't be good for the country. And so, w- what, what, do we, what do we do? Uh, we continue to 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 focus on our core missions, and that is creating life-changing experiences for the students we serve. Because then our, our graduates can be the greatest advocates and spokespeople for us and their families and their loved ones and their broader networks. We continue to advance knowledge and contribute to the, to the state, the region, the world, and those who we touch be our greatest advocates. We consistently, relentlessly tell our story and get out of the ivory tower, so to speak, to to, to meet our alums, to meet our civic leaders, to meet our faith leaders, to meet others. And as people see, um, people's perceptions even are different how you frame things from higher education, which polls terribly, as you're saying, to America's leading research universities. And people are more encouraged about that. And so when people start to think, oh, we're the places that do scientific discoveries to help get us out of a pandemic, to help uh, slow aging, to, to help attack the mental health crises that are afflicting America, people start to feel a little better about us. And it's those kinds of efforts that we continue to make relentlessly. I want to turn to another demographic split in colleges and universities. And this has been happening for years, uh, a gender split, but but it shows no sign of abating right now. And, and I think it's worse than ever. There are more and more women on campuses and, and fewer men. Right now, for at least last fall, for the freshman class, 57% of the class uh, were young women, 43% were young men. What does that mean for your university now and in all universities? Yeah, the number the the gender split is a little less dramatic at the University of Oregon, but um, that, that, no, that was a U of O last year. I thought I thought it was fifty four forty six, but oh, uh, I, that was just for the freshman class okay, last year. I see, um, but I'll check my numbers, and if I'm wrong, <laughs> I'll post it on our website. All right, I appreciate that, um, uh, but. More generally, uh, changes in the the labor market have a pretty significant effect on gender composition of college going. And so as labor markets are tight, you see fewer men going to college and entering uh, trades uh, to a degree that's different from women. Um, But the story remains the same, that we 
continue to talk about the value of higher education. We continue to work hard on our Pathways programs to expose students in middle school and high school about what college is about and why college makes sense. And these things tend to have a bit of a cyclical component. And so I I don't think those gender differences will be an enduring feature of higher education. Well, but they have endured for decades now. Uh, They have gotten more extreme in recent years, which I think is why you're asking the question. But um, there... As ch- as there's changes in the labor market and as there's skills, you know, in, as an economist, we talk about skill bias, technical change. I think we'll see different patterns of college going. Um, if you're just tuning in, I'm talking right now with Carl Schultz, the president of the University of Oregon. He uh, took over as president officially on July 1st. It's now been about three months since the Supreme Court struck down affirmative action, enough time, I think, to let the dust settle a little bit for people in your position. How do you think about that decision today? Well, at the University of Oregon, we've always embraced holistic admissions. And so the Supreme Court decision sets up some boundaries, but it does not fundamentally affect how we've been admitting the class at the University of Oregon. We, of course, will be following the law, um, but we will also seek to create a uh, student body that is representative of the state of Oregon. And I think that's necessary to do for the experience of the students that we serve. People driving through Northeast Portland over the last year, I I bet many of them have seen some of the many signs saying, University of Portland this way. They're striking when when you are driving through Portland, a place that people don't normally associate with the University of Oregon. I mean, there there has been a a building in downtown Portland for a while now where, where some people study urban planning or architecture or other things, but what are the university's larger plans now for Portland? Right. Um, interestingly enough, Dave, we've the University of Oregon has been in Portland for 150 years. And so um, we are, we've been committed to Portland. We recognize uh, the success of Oregon depends importantly on the success of Portland. And we have a set of graduate programs in law, business, journalism, design, and education that have been in Portland. And now we're able to move to the former Concordia uh, college campus in Northeast Portland, as you say, is 19 acres. It's beautiful. We have housing. We have green space, playing fields. Um, and we can expand our, our, our footprint and make a, make a bigger difference in Portland, both for our students, for internships, for other job placement. But one of the most exciting things that's happening at Portland is the Balmer Institute for Children's Behavioral Health. Now, for the first time, we have our first class of undergraduates who are coming. Uh, they spend their first two years in Eugene, and then their junior, senior, or third and fourth years in Portland. And what the Balmer Institute is doing, it's an audacious vision, because we have a child and adolescent behavioral health crisis in America. We have it at the University of Oregon. And what we're doing at the Balmer Initiative is trying to create an entirely new employment category, Because right now, the specialists who work in this field invariably require master's degrees or PhDs. And there's simply not the supply of people to intervene in a timely way before 
their full-blown crises. And so what we're trying to do at the, with the Balmer Initiative is create a new employee class of well-trained, evidence-based people who can be embedded in the schools and pediatricians with just a bachelor's degree to intervene before problems become crises. It is the ultimate goal, I mean, so that, that's one undergraduate program, a, a new one that's just starting up, but is the overall goal to have Portland be to the University of Oregon, what OSU Cascades in Bend is to Oregon State, a, a place where U of O undergrads who aren't just in that program can, can study in Portland? No, we will keep things pretty narrow, not narrowly, but we will keep things confined to the areas that we have expertise uh, in Portland, sports product marketing, our journalism programs, our architecture, urban architecture programs, the children's behavioral health. And so this will not be an omnibus satellite campus all serving of the University of Oregon. Rather, we'll focus on the specialties that we have here that make the most sense for Portland and the University of Oregon. Finally, I want to turn to the U of O's announcement that it's leaving the Pac-12 to join the Big Ten. When it happened, you wrote in a statement that, quote, the connections we will make with some of the leading public research institutions in the world will lead to new opportunities for our students, staff, faculty, and university stakeholders through the Big Ten Academic Alliance and other venues. Are you saying with a straight face that having football players fly to games in Ohio is going to lead to collaborations between U of O professors, scientists, and their counterparts in Big Ten universities? Absolutely. I'm dead serious about that. I, can you, I, 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 yes. I truly don't, don't understand that. I, I, welcome, I welcome the question. Okay. And then, and then I, I want to talk about the academic excellence aspect of this, but then I'd like to step back and say a couple other things about the move to the Big Ten. But on this question of academic excellence, let me be clear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying the Big Ten conferences and academic conferences necessarily better or worse than the institutions in the Pac-12. I'm not weighing in on that at all. But the Big Ten as a conference has done things academically that no other conference in the country has done. And that is through the auspices of the Big Ten Academic Alliance. So let me give you a handful of examples. The Big Ten has something called the Big, Ten, the Big Collection, where the libraries of the Big Ten share resources in ways that libraries elsewhere don't. And you can imagine how difficult it is for every university library to have comprehensive collections in every dimension of human inquiry. And so what the big t collection will do is say, all right, Michigan, you will specialize in Southeast Asia. In Ohio State, you can specialize in South Asia. In UCLA, you specialize in Africa collection. And that way, we can share resources, whether electronically or by shipping resources, to, that I can get an uh, item held at the University of Michigan on my desk as an Oregon faculty member in two days uh, and, and makes us stronger. We share the teaching of less commonly taught languages. And so not every university can have a full sequence in Swahili, despite the fact that tens and probably hundreds of millions of people in the world teach Swahili. And so we can have Michigan State teaching Swahili 
one. We can have Indiana teaching Swahili two. Oregon can teach Swahili three. And multiply that across all of the less commonly taken languages across the globe. The Big Ten academic leadership program has often been tried to replicate. No one has been able to do it. And so for someone who's interested in being a department chair, a dean, or a higher level administrator, this is the premier program in the country. And lastly, the, the various vice presidents of the institutions get together two or three times a year to share best practices. These are the provosts, the chief enrollment officers, the chief financial officers, and that makes us better. And no one has been able to do that, and those activities will elevate the academic enterprise at the University of Oregon. Is it so fair that's to say what that I was speaking to. But is it fair to say that for you, this is a kind of academic cherry on top of a half a billion dollar over 10 years TV deal. That, yep. that, so that this happened because of that, that money, and then you're saying there, there are some academic benefits as well. There's some significant academic benefits, as I just said. And then there have been people who've characterized this as chasing money over mission, and I couldn't disagree more. One is the academic reasons that I just told you, but there's three other reasons that are critical. First is stability. I don't have to you know do the litany, but when USC and UCLA left to the Pac-12, 40% of the media value of the Pac-12 disappeared with it. Colorado then left before a media deal was on the table. So full 25% of the Pac-12 had vanished. Then we had a, there was a deal on the table, uh, and my colleagues Bobby Robbins, the president of Arizona, said um, the Apple TV deal on the table would be like selling candy bars to support your little league team. Anna Marie Kausi from the University of Washington said, when the best feature of a deal is that you can get out of it after two years, it's not a very good deal. So by joining the Big Ten Conference, we have found stability. We've joined the most stable academic athletic conference in the country. That stability is really important to us. We just have second, br briefly, then, then one last question. Then second go. Is, is visibility. So we are now on conventional TV in ways that would not have happened if we were having to buy add-on packages to Apple TV. And that's indispensable for recruiting our classes. And lastly, resources. Resources, of course, matter. But University of Oregon has one of 25 universities where our athletic program is entirely self-funding. So I'm not having to ask the taxpayers of the state of Oregon or the parents of the children who come to the University of Oregon to pay for the athletics program. And I'm very proud of that. If you could wave a magic wand and create a, a world of American universities and colleges where the head of the heads of all these universities didn't spend so much time thinking about the impact of TV deals for football, would you wave that would you wave that wand? It's a hypothetical that's hard to entertain. It, I, it I, is, I live, I live in the world that we're, that we're operating in. Yes. And do you, what do you, what do you major, think of this world? A major intercollegiate athletics provides a wonderful front door to the university. We had more than 10 million people watch the Oregon-Colorado football game. That's 10 million people exposed to the extraordinary um, setting that is the University of Oregon. It helps us with recruiting. It helps us with philanthropy. and helps us in all sorts of different ways. Carl Schultz, thanks very much. Thank you very much. It's really been a treat. Carl Schultz is the president of the University of Oregon.
Tomorrow on the show, as students and parents connected to Portland Public Schools brace for what would be the first teachers' strike in district history, we'll sit down with two members of the administration. We'll hear where negotiations stand and talk about the latest student test scores. If you don't want to miss any of our shows, you can listen on the NPR One app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our nightly rebroadcast is at 8 p.m. Thanks very much for tuning in to Think Out Loud on OPB and KLCC. I'm Dave Miller. Have a great day. Think Out Loud is supported by Steve and Jan Oliva, the Rose E. Tucker Charitable Trust, Ray and Marilyn Johnson, and the Susan Hammer Fund of the Oregon Community Foundation. Thank you.